This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Winnie from Birmingham, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is, what event, sporting or otherwise, would you introduce to the Birmingham 22 Games, and should we even still be celebrating the Commonwealth Games? Okay, here comes the show, and remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast with myself, comedian and writer and occasional actor Dane Baptiste, and my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizza. Hello! And a mix of a very special guest posed to questions that need to be asked, and we're talking everything from... Everything from Winnie from Birmingham's question, which sport would you like to introduce to the Commonwealth Games in 2022? But I think, God, don't get don't get Dane started on the Commonwealth Games. No, that's not going to... I assume that's not your favourite athletic event, Dane, no? I mean, oh, I like I like athletics. I, I actually feel like, you know, I just think there was, I wish there was more support for people from more modest backgrounds in these, what I refer to as equipment sports. Because, you know, you might have somebody in a particular area right now, Cornwall, who is an amazing windsurfer, but doesn't have the funds in order for them to compete olympically. So, yeah. But um, so far as the question, the sport I would like to be introduced to the Commonwealth Games, I think, would be uh, a game called Patball that I used to play at school. <laughs> niche. Nice and niche. Okay. I, I may have different names, but some it's very similar to, like, handball. So most people play, like, handball. But if you're from Southeast London or South London, you'll know what patball is, and that should definitely be a Olympic sport by now. So patball in the 2020 Commonwealth Games, I'd probably go for something I could uh, win 2020, at. Like, 20, 2022, Howard. 2022, sorry, yeah. I'd yeah. go uh, Yahtzee, something like that. I'd probably just play Yahtzee. It's, it's quite good at that. Well, if Yahtzee's going to be there, Uno needs to be there too, then. Yeah, sure. I'd happily go Uno, whatever you like. Um, but, but listen, suffice to say, we ask and answer all the questions on this podcast, don't we, Dane? Absolutely. Whether they are amateur, professional or Olympic, uh, big, small, silly or smart, all questions are welcome. And if you do like the show, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify and you'll never miss an episode. Or subscribe to us on Acast, the world's largest podcast network, where you can see us and all of our very special guests. With that being said, on today's show is a comedian, writer, actor, and all-round national institution. His stunning TV work includes the BAFTA award series, The Misadventures of, Asian Provocateur, his weekly topical show, Ranga Nation, and his sitcom, The Reluctant Landlord. He is the host of award-winning podcast, Hip Hop Saved My Life, and his autobiography, Straight Out Crawley, became a Sunday Times bestseller. His second book, As Good As It Gets, Life Lessons from a Reluctant Adult, is out now. And also, before he was doing all this, he was rapping too. So he nice. is a quintuple threat. Makes <laughs> so you should already know who this legend is. Please welcome to the show the man that I call Roro, but the legend you know as Ramesh Ranganathan. Uh, hello, Dane. Thank you very much for having me, man. That's a f- what an intro, man. Thanks, man. Oh, I, I had to trim. I had to trim that stuff, Ramesh. Honestly, yeah. beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, because it's not all. It's not all great. I mean, I did. Uh, 50 greatest plastic surgery shockers. I noticed you didn't include that on the... Uh, yeah, the no, I, I actually had Howard, to watch... I told you he was going to say something. I told yeah. you he would say something. He was on fire in that fucking show. 
And I just left it out. I just left it out. Um, I didn't, I mean, I didn't even really include your stand up in it, which is obviously where, no. you know. Or his staunch Arsenal support and the yeah. rapping. Yeah. The rapping. And not just like modern day eight bar rapping. I mean, real old school, skinny yeah. man, just right. backpack rapping. Like Romesh probably listened to people who came from. Nottingham. That's how much he loved hip hop. Yeah. You know when you listen to rapping for hours and all of the rapping is about how good you are at rapping? That kind of rapping. Yeah. People that rap about stuff that they possess, like talent. Yeah. That's how much he cares about rapping. I grew up in London. Londoners, when we used to hear a British accent rapping, we'd be like, ugh, because we are stuck up pieces of shit. But Romesh, he's stuck with that. Real support of UK talent. Mate, it's so funny you say that because, like, you know, when. You know, I was one of the only people like in my group of friends, that, me and a couple of others that really into hip hop. And I remember you used to try and get other people into it. I don't know why, because it pissed you off when other people started saying they like people that you like. <laughs> yeah. But I remember like, you know, when you, you first start playing British hip hop to people, people just yeah. like, why would I want to listen to this man? Like the accents are so hideous. Like Mark to, B and to, Blade. Mark B yeah. and Blade always come up in my mind there. Mark yeah, B Mark Blade. B and Blade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blade's like, he's just, Blade's just uh, started a new... YouTube channel, I think, where he's like interviewing like all the old school artists. Like, I just, I think he just did one with uh, Hunk Hillberry Finn from Catch Twenty Two, who are this like uh, nice. proper seminal UK hip hop group. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's um, I was a, a proper like embarrassingly into it head. Do you know what I mean? Where I'd be like, mm. oh, no, it's it's more no, than it's not, nothing to be embarrassed about at all. <laughs> okay, uh, for a hardcore British hip hop fan. You were forsaking popularity, luck with women, <laughs> friendship. Oh. You stuck with that, and I respect yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, mate, the number of gigs, like the number of, I must have broken the record for consecutive number of gigs attended with not a single female in attendance. I mean, it was just, <laughs> it was just incredible, man. Like women even go to darts, Howard. That's how dedicated <laughs> Romesh is. There's like three women at darts, and maybe one of those is sexually active. Mate, and by so, that I mean. Uh, people would actively have sex with her. But there's still three women there. You don't mm, get yeah. that real hardcore hip hop. Like, you know, I remember you know. I remember having I remember having an epiphany at like, you know, you used to used to go to like club nights where they'd put on hip hop. And I remember our mate, me and my mates just realising that we weren't actually dancing. We were just sort of rapping the lyrics aggressively in each other's faces and then wondering why women weren't approaching us. I mean, part of the reason there's only two of them in there. And yeah. secondly, we just looked absolutely like socially Inept, mm. do you know what I mean? It was pathetic. That, that was it. But when you were there, you're looking around and like, you're looking at the other guys being like, look at this motherfucker, doesn't even know the words. Like, what's he doing? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, remember there being, I remember there being a time when friends of mine would recite songs that we liked, rap songs that we liked, and we were really impressed, right, that they could recite it. And I don't have any idea why we were impressed by that. No, I mean, if, if anything, it, it displays a lack of sort of hobbies and, and other stuff to do, really. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's weird, like, you could get into hip-hop, you get into hip-hop so much, the sort of lyricism of it and the kind of hardcore nature of it, that you actually weirdly start moving away from the musicality of it. And then, mm. you know, when you sort of... I know people talk about hip-hop moving away from the, the skills and the lyricism that you used to have, but there is something to be said for using your voice as an instrument, you know, and, and, and there are yeah. rappers who, oh. who show great skill in, it's not necessarily about metaphors and dense, you know, multi-syllabics. It's just about using your voice to flow on a track. And like people that are properly hardcore into the lyrics, lyrical side of it, sort of, it took them a while to accept that as a, yeah, it took as, a, while as a skill. It's always, you know been, it's always been a part of it. I always thought that, with, you know, Jurassic Five were a wonderful uh, 
group for a period of time that I always enjoyed. And Charlie Tuna sounds like a bass line when he's rapping. So See, but, yeah, I remember. But this is the thing: these, these, this was before there was this uh, weird uh, assimilation of hip hop or into what became commercial rap music and then became urban. Is that it? And it became this homogenous, like, like I guess equivalent of music so- a music sausage which combined sensibilities from all these different other musics of black origin and then made this weird uh frankenstein monster but before that like i said it was clear distinct five clear distinct pillars of hip-hop and the rapping part was a big part of it as well but i think yeah people just enjoy obviously there's a lot of verbosity and verbal dexterity that if someone could do the same thing you'd respect it um yeah i got a friend who used to rap in a group as well um the group was called the irs and they released two mixtapes um, his rap name is King Cal. I don't know if you listen to this Nero, but big up yourself. But um, <laughs> he was saying, like, in the way that, like, Andy Warhol said that everyone has 15 minutes of fame, he reckons that everyone has 16 bars of fame. Yeah, if everybody could sit down and have the time to write six rhyming stanzas, anyone could do 16 bars. And that's why I poop. And also, rapping is not like singing, which requires you to be able to harmonize. You're essentially talking almost like melodically. So the barriers to entry are very low very much like stand-up because you get a very similar um, behavior where people get so into stand-up that when you're just telling a joke, they're just like, oh, yes, I see what he did there. Well, yes. <laughs> and people are unable to enjoy comedy just for the sake of punchline. It's like, how did he arrive there? I kind of saw that coming. But just enjoy it for what it is. So yeah. I guess that was like our, our generation's equivalent of holding up your camera phone. It's like, just live in the moment and enjoy the show. You don't have to yeah, 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 yeah. bar for bar that's, and persecute those who can't. That's a very good shirt. It's probably time for a question, isn't it, Dane, as the uh, format of this show dictates? Absolutely. No time like the present. Ramesh is our esteemed guest who's finally made it. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, first of all. Thanks for having me, mate. You finally made it. You know, yeah, I know. I'm, I'm pretty shit at, at uh, doing anything. You know, in terms of like turning up for shit, I'm pretty bad bad at it. So um, I'm glad to be on it. Hey, man. This is good, man. So uh, as our esteemed guest, we welcome to ask a first question, which we'll discuss for 50 minutes or some change. How do ask another question? We'll do the same. Lather, rinse, repeat. I'll bring it home and do the final verse. Ask you the last question, which we'll discuss for 15 minutes or bars, whichever you prefer. And then we can find, can let the audience know where they can find you, particularly the people listening in Jupiter, because if anyone on earth has not heard of you, Ramesh, it's fucking insane. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> With that being said, are you welcome to ask our first question? Well, my first question, the, the, I'll be honest with you, the question is not fully crystallised, but I just want to discuss this generally, is do you think the trainer bubble is going to burst because Ooh. I don't know. Now, Dane, I know you're into your footwear. Howard, apologies. I don't know how, how into your wheels you are. But yeah, like, yeah, Howard, oh, here's look, a, look, look, look at the state of that. Look at the state of that. Look at the state of that. That looks like something you get at school for free. <laughs> <laughs> but, and not but a good school. <laughs> not um, a great school. Crossways. No. No, but listen, Howard, you're rocking it. You know, you're owning that look. Um, Style over fashion, Howard. Do you know what? They are actually actually, um, Under Armour. Um, Most people don't know that Under Armour do shoes. No, and and the fact that you would would say that as a a sort of a brag, it sort of says a a lot about what your position is in this this discussion. (laughs) 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 But... um, the thing, the thing I think about trainers is like, I remember, and, and a lot of people have made this observation, but, you know, I remember, you know, Jordans have been around for an eternity, obviously, right? And I remember like, if you, and I'm talking about when I was a kid and when I was a teenager and stuff, I remember like, 
If you spent £90 on a pair of trainers, and I know that I was in a, you were in a different economic state at that, at that stage of your life. If you spent £90 on a pair of trainers, you'd be considering that purchase for maybe a year. You know, you'd, you'd buy those trainers and you would, you'd be so worried about even wearing them out. Do you know what I mean? And, and, and gradually, as I've got older, I've sort of, I've been getting into trainers and or I've stayed into trainers. And one of the things that I've noticed is the market has obviously hyperinflated. You know, it, it is partly partly because of of hip hop culture becoming so big but also because of this deliberate strategy of undersupplying the market and so you know obviously it leads to these dealers and stuff like that but one of the things that i kind of noticed was you started to get a phenomenon this phenomenon of of goods price being almost completely determined by how difficult it is to get hold of them. And, and, it, and it moved above and beyond aesthetically what they look like. You, you're almost sort of dictated how much you should pay for these trainers, regardless of what they look like, because this is what the street tells you that they're supposed to be worth. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. you know, like people, you know, people started joking about Yeezys when those boosts first came out. Everybody's like, what the fuck are these? But actually I quite, I quite like those. Right. But I'm then. Trying to, trying to 350, 700. Yeah. The 350, the 350s, yeah, yeah, right. The 350s at first. So, so everybody was, I actually quite like those. I got you know, three of them. Yeah. Oh, I mean, that's, <laughs> but then like, <laughs> but then like it got to the point where certain colorways would come out and people would go, fucking hell, it's really hard to get hold of those ones. And then suddenly I'd be like, oh, I want to get them. And it's not like I wanted to get them because I thought they were nicer than the ones I already had. It's just that suddenly you think, oh shit, those ones are hard to get. And now I fool myself as an adult and a father of three into thinking this is something I have to have. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes like some, some, I mean, trainers, ugly trainers are a thing, right? And expensive, Mm. ugly trainers. Especially now. My goodness. Yeah. And so. Uglier the better these days. Yeah, I mean, and I Dane's guess... going to have a lot. Dane's going to have a lot to say about this, and I've got a very small amount to say about it because I don't give a fuck about anything really that I buy. I don't. He buy said anything. it though. He was like, "They're still under armour, though." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I don't you buy. Went in, you, I don't, went in, you went in big early there, mate, didn't you? You did. You did. <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I bought a, I bought a, a t-shirt the other day, and I said to my wife, "This is the first time I bought clothes in two years," uh, which is mental. But I often look at people's obsession with trainers. Uh, like how I used to feel about stickers, like the Premiership stickers. It's like got a need. Do you know what I mean? Like you guys are just buying them for the sake of buying them. Dane, do you disagree? Or um, I mean, I feel like it's a. It's not really that that would have been the case, but it's now like a recognised industry. Like the hype beast uh, and the resale industry is a whole, almost a whole distinct industry from fashion retail itself. And um, I probably became more aware of the importance of trainers uh, as I was probably towards the end of my time at secondary school because in the beginning, when I was at the behest of my parents, then the trainers weren't as forthcoming. And at the time, I think there was like the holy trinity of Reebok, Adidas and Nike. And I say trinity, really, it's either Reebok or Nike. And then Adidas, you were like, all right, I guess. And even then, normally it just had to be predators for people to even respect you as a human being. But um, yeah, for me, Ramesh, I think I began to question the same thing when uh, there was a collaboration between Supreme and I think Nike to do the phone posits. And those things uh, look like if a magic carpet had a car crash into a Fiat Multiplier. They are so fucking ugly. <laughs> it's insane. So ugly. They are so ugly. The colorway is ridiculous. It goes with nothing other than black. It's, it's, I mean, it's terrible. They are terrible. But I know when they came out, I think in, I was in New York at the time, and I think at least two people got stabbed. 
for them. And right. there are even people in prison now over Jordans. Um, so it, I would say, I mean, yeah, the importance of trainers has been insane. And, like, and because of the appeal of commercial hip hop that, like Ramesh correctly said, is allowed for high end fashion houses or haute couture to now enter into this market, which has now led to this prevalence of very, very ugly trainers. Like, for example, this might be controversial, I'm going to say it anyway. Alexander McQueen's, yeah? They're just yes. superstars on steroids. That's Mate. all they are. Mate, a hundred percent. I I I totally agree with you. I totally yeah, agree with you. Very, I still I still ugly. I'm not I still couldn't definitely tell you that I'm not gonna get some. But no, I, I totally I totally agree with you. What are you gonna do with them once you've got them, Ramesh? What are you gonna do with them? I don't do you know what? That's, that's a funny thing though, like because that that question is a great one, right? Because you buy you get you get really into it. You get really into trainers, right? And, you know, you're searching for grails and stuff like that and you're, you're trying to find these... Sh- and then you put them on and you wear them, they're never going to get you what you're hoping they're going to get you because if you go out, pre-COVID I'm talking about, or, and post-COVID in 2025, whenever we get out of this, but when you're walking about with your trainers on, of 100 people you see, there might be seven that know how exclusive those trainers are or what they're about, right? So it's just like, in terms of like... I don't know what you're trying to, I don't understand. I'm trying to get to the bottom of the mentality of what is behind that desire to get those trainers. Do you know what I mean? And like, what, 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 I think there's something, I worry that there's something ugly at the heart of my desire to get, to get nice or to get expensive trainers or hard to get trainers. I, I, I find it. I worry that I'm going to fully unpack it and find something about myself that I really don't like. I think, I think part of it is like, it's not a massive expense. Like, even though it's become more comparatively expenses, I think because of the uh, economic disposition of most people, you're dealing with a group of, most people in the West will have a lot of, I guess disposable income to an extent, but that disposable income can only stretch as far as probably like um, varied assets in that it's an asset that won't last longer than three years. Whereas if you bought like a house or you bought plant or plant machinery or anything like that, that is not going to change that often. Whereas trainers, like if they average in price from let's say 100 to like 500 pounds, like people can afford it or they can afford to buy it on resale or some people. So for some people, it's not that expensive in the same way that like, you know, that's how much it would cost to go out on like two rounds of drinks in, in London. So they're like, it's not really that big of an expense. So I guess one that's probably one of the justifications for it that it's like, you know, and also as far as you're aware, like the commercial appeal of trainers come from hip hop culture anyway. So if you've been grown up and steeped yourself in the culture, it's there's a lot of people that I would consider to be rather conscientious people who are ecologically conscious, but trainers is normally their one vice. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, lot of friends, a lot of friends were like, they won't probably buy like Rolexes or a Swiss watch. They probably won't spend that much money on gaudy jewelry, but the one weakness is trainers because that's the, indi- that's the, the last indicator. And, and also it's like, Trainers have become so successful is that it's probably one of the last parts of the aesthetic of being in hip hop culture that have now transcended being older. Because before, you know, you'd probably be an age of people like you're too old to wear those rummish, you'd be like, fuck off. Mm-hmm. But now you can just there is now a market that kind of caters to that, you know, you know, older, older elder millennial or you know, generation Y who can now continue to wear trainers, especially because now they've now transitioned into being a part of both popular culture. Um, and mainstream culture and also with the, yeah like with Hort Couture as well because mm. like Versace does train like you name it everybody has their own kind of trainer and some of those are very like people wear Louboutins those are trainers with spikes on them 
And <laughs> Giuseppe's and Nottie's, like also they've they've got those chains have got like chains on them. They have, like a bike. Like, I don't understand what the appeal could possibly be. All consumerism. I mean, the, the the dark bit of your soul that you're kind of fearing, uh, Romish. I think mm. is is just consumerism, isn't it? And like we all well, have our we all have our kind of guilty pleasures in that world. No. Yeah, I think I think you're right, and I think you know it goes so against. You know, whenever I, I think about the way my the way you're brought up or the way I was brought up to think about money and stuff is that you're you're supposed to be smart with your money and you you know if you don't want it to you know a a fool in his money assume parted you know all of those things where you think well actually I should put my money into property I should be put my money aside and who knows when this will all go away you know this will all go wrong or you know I won't get work anymore you know all of these things that are going through your head buying expensive trainers sits in such direct opposition to all to all of those all of that ethos you know and so but but the but the truth I, 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 it's weird i still it's the one thing where i just think i really i, I really love trainers i'm going to keep buying them but i know that there is nothing there is no nobility in the decision making process into into doing this, there's unless they're, unless they're ethically made or you're, you're helping a particular industry in an area do quite well. Yes, true. Trainers, trainers. So far as growing up in Southeast London, that culture's always been around. And you know, you yeah. said earlier about like if you had ninety pound trainers, if you had ninety pound trainers when I was growing up, you better not have to fucking fight. So <laughs> if your trainers cost more than, I'm being absolutely serious. If they cost more than seventy pounds and you can't defend them, somebody would have taken them from you. That okay. is how that's how big the culture is. That's you, like even you know, the 95 MX 95s are called 110s where I'm from because they would cost 110 pounds. So once people knew you were in 110 pounds, well, you better not be light on your feet to come out of them because people will take those. Oh, when the Harachis first came out, oh dear, those are getting taken all the time. Um, Prada, when Prada started making trainers and stuff as well, and then they just became the uniform or the starter kit for all drug dealers and roadmen uh, nationwide. And so, <laughs> if, you, if you wanted to get into a nightclub, do not wear those. Um, I, I, I used to. I think the ones that the ones that have a special place in my heart because when I was that age that they came out, all of the coolest kids I knew had them was the black and red Jordan sixes. I think those, those were the ones yeah. that, that those are the ones that Very big everybody one. I knew were just they were they were so great. But that that thing about your trainers getting nicked, I remember <laughs> like. Where I remember, if you had a night, do you do you have that? Do you remember that, that? Do you have that phenomenon near where you live, where you wear a new jacket, you bit a train station, you'd be out somewhere, and somebody you sort of knew would come up to you and go, "That's a nice jacket, man. Do you mind if I just like? Do you mind if I just try that on?" So, <laughs> yeah. And, oh and you, basically, you basically knew if you give that jacket to that guy, you will never ever see it again. It's the same question as, "Oh, let me write your back for a bit." Yeah, 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 100%, yeah. I used to, it happened to so many people I know. And then there's that thing where you almost become scared to wear, you become scared to wear nice shit because then you sort Absolutely. of, you'd see, so, you'd see somebody, you'd see somebody looking at you and you think, I am very close to having to make a decision as to whether I lose this jacket or have a fight with this guy. Do you know what I mean? That was a, that was a thing. I know exactly what I mean. Even so- yeah, I think in, this, in Dizzy Rascal's second album for Maths, I think in, for, is it time? Was it Maths and English, right? It was the second yeah, one. Yeah, Maths and English, yeah. So you know, in, I think on the front, he's wearing an Averick's jacket and he's got 95s on. And basically the uniform is, that is like uniform for you, you are very wealthy in London. And it was like, if you wear that and you cannot hold on to that, an Averick's as a 450 pound jacket, it will be taken off of your shoulders. And mm. yeah, I, but yeah, it's been very, like I remember because I went to school with Sean Matt Phillips and Bradley. Yeah. 
And I remember what, and I guess if I Ian Wright's deal with Nike, they would get all the best trainers. And one time they both got Air Max 95s that were navy and they tick and it was Comet Red. And I'm telling you, when they walked through Lucian, it was like there was a spotlight on them. Well, wow. nobody had them. And I still to this day, I barely see that colorway. We were just like, oh my fucking God. And also, I think people to do as well, if you had like an air bubble and you weren't particularly popular, people would try and pop it. Yeah. Oh, mate, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, you've earned, what I'm trying to say is, Romesh, you've earned the right to buy these trainers, okay? Okay. Yeah. Survive the streets of Crawley and London, right? Creative arts, supporting your family and your children. If I want to get some nice crepes, everybody leave me the fuck alone. The guy worked yeah. fucking hard for those trainers. Exactly. You know, well, long, well, long journey. Yeah. Long journey to, you, to, to enjoy your trainers. Enjoy them. What I'm saying is, Romesh, is that Howard only has one pair of trainers, which you've seen. <laughs> How did his wife sleep in separate bedrooms? I'm not saying those things are related at all. I'm not saying that. Dane, you know it's to do with... Uh, I wouldn't be married if I had shared a bed with her. It would never have worked exactly. out. You do whatever it takes to make We still managed to make a baby. We that's still made a baby. Exactly how, that's know. all that matters. That you love each other and you have a wonderful family. I'm just yeah. saying, if you had a pair of Jordan's cement retros, number threes, it probably would happen a lot quicker. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Howard. Do you know what, Dane? It, it's interesting you say that, Dane, because it's a perfect segue into my question. <laughs> it really is a perfect segue because, um, because you know, Dane and listeners and, and Ramesh, you know, like I, I, I made this bloke with my wife and he's been here eight months now. He lives with us, you know, this guy, he's eight months old. Um, when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And you've got, just so our listeners might not, yeah, you've got three kids, is it, Romesh? I've got three boys, yeah, uh, 11, 9, and 6. Yeah, so it's, you know, and obviously you spend quite a lot of time with them and, um, you know, he's only been here for eight, eight months, you know, and obviously I love the guy, you know. Moments in the last couple of weeks where I'm starting to get a little bit fucked off at him. Um, <laughs> the views you know. of Howard Cohen do not represent the views of Dave Matthews. <laughs> Particularly, I'm not uh, in like a nasty parties, way. Parties led by Tara are concerned. <laughs> not in a nasty way. It's more like, you know, we lay his books out. He's got a few books. You know, you can't read, obviously, but he looks at them. Mm. And every, every, you know, we got all these different books. There's what there's one about the the witch, and there's one of whatever. And then he keeps every day. He picks the same fucking Busy Bear book, Busy Bear mm. Go Kart Racing, or whatever the fuck it is. It's just like, just pick another book. Come on, mate. Like, show some variety. Anyway, well, so do whole- you know what? <laughs> I, I sort of think the fault's with you there slightly because, <laughs> you know, we're living in very anxious times. It's very unpredictable. What's wrong with picking a book where you know exactly what's going to happen? Do you, know, you take all the jeopardy out of the situation. <laughs> because everyone, 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 needs, everyone, needs, everyone needs grounding. Everyone yeah, needs grounding. He's looking for a little bit of comfort, you know? And, oh, I'm uh, sick of this Busy Bear. He's arrogant. He's one day he's a racer, one day he's a rotten a rocket 
Yeah. He, you know, he doesn't do any real jobs, this busy bear. He's a, he's oh, a fool. Well, now we um, see where the pathology leads. <laughs> uh, yeah. But my whole... Po- about paternity, there's yeah. a man real, in your life insecure. that's more important. <laughs> it's, not, it's not busy yeah, bear proctologist, is it? He does all these, he does all these jobs. He's got better trainers than me. This guy's a prick. <laughs> <laughs> but my whole point was going to be my whole point was going to be quite simple really which is and and Dane you know I'm very interested to hear what you both think what constitutes good parenting because obviously I keep reading him the busy bear book um and I think that's good parenting because he wants to read it um but what do you Ramesh in your you know esteemed opinion what constitutes good parenting uh, I mean I think it's I think it's uh it's a very, very, very difficult question. I mean, the truth is, um, I think if you're worried about being a good parent, there's a good chance that you probably are a good parent. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think yeah. it's having having enough awareness, self-awareness to actually be thinking about what you're doing and whether you're doing the right things is, is, is probably most of the battle, I think. You know, because the truth is, you know, m- my parents... They gave me the best upbringing they could. Circumstances sort of took it out of their control a little bit. But but my mum in particular was, was and is a great mum. But she has given me a set of hang-ups that stay with me to this day. Do, do you know what I mean? And, and, We've never noticed. Uh, We've never uh, noticed. <laughs> and like, and I tried and to that, find a life of my own and a career of my own where I could be things away from my family. And then no one said that. <laughs> and like, you know, so, so when, when I think about that, I think to myself, well, I, my mum did a great job as far as I'm concerned. You know, she, she, sure. she, uh, she's a hero of mine for, for the way that she, she went, she overcame adversity and, and brought my brother and I up. But there are certain things that I'm fucked up about as a direct result of, of things that my mum said to me, you know? And so, and so there is no doubt that my kids, I've already hardwired some insecurities or some shit into my kids, some stuff I've said and things where I've made the wrong decisions. Uh, and that's just mm. part of it. But every day, probably every day, I think my wife and I, at some point will talk about whether we got a decision right or whether we played this mm. bit, we played this thing correctly or whether we were too harsh in this instance or whatever. And so I think it's that, you know, that we've made lots of mistakes. I've actually been, I, I, I don't know if this is the right decision or not. I've been very honest with my kids to the point of telling them that I'm not 100% sure of what I'm doing. You know, there have been times when I have uh, overreacted to one of my sons doing something. I realised that I've done that and I've had to go to them and say, I'm going to be honest with you, I called it wrong. You know, and, and I, I reacted to what I saw in the moment. And look, this is my first time doing this. And so I'm not always going to, I'm not infallible. You know, I'm not always going to be, I'm not always going to get this right. So I don't say it in those words. I say it in a way that commands a lot more fucking respect from them. But, you know, <laughs> but, I, but, but I, I do, <laughs> I do, I do say that to them. And, and I, I think that's, that's yeah. part of it, you know. But the truth is, it's like parenting involves so many decisions every single day, there's absolutely no mm. way you're going to get that all right. When I was, because I used to be a teacher, and when, mm. when I, the, the parents that were completely steadfast that they were doing things 100% correctly were the ones that I sort of worried most about their children. Do you know what I mean? I, I think that, you know, it's, it's such a difficult job, and you're just trying to do it to the best of your abilities. If you're trying to do it to the best of your abilities, that's good enough, man. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that is good enough. That's a, that's a really... I mean, actually, it reminds me that before I had the baby, uh, 
Gaz Khan came on the show. Do you remember Dane? And uh, I, Indeed, said, yeah, uh, yeah. I said to him, have you got any tips? <laughs> and he said, as long as those kids, this has stuck with me. Uh, every, I think about it all the time. As long as those kids had a good time and, you know, you still love each other, then that's pretty much, you've done a good job, right? Uh, and it's kind of, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, there is no one answer, right? I mean, the, the, what I like the bit you said, Ramesh, about, you know, these people who think they've got it right or kind of, that's the bit that, day nobody I mean, nobody gets it right. Well, how, 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 yeah, how could they? Because obviously um, the thing about parent, as we're discussing the job title rather than like a predisposition as a human being, like Roma said, you don't really get any prior practice of being a parent until you have children of your own. Um, I don't have any kids, but I guess what was a significant uh, revelation for me was having to live with my parents way longer than I wanted to because I decided to pursue comedy and being in my parents' home in my 30s um, mm-hmm. allowed me to see them for the people they were, not just uh, the parents that they are and as authoritarians. Right. And I feel like that um, it's be- these kind of terms and kind of the pressure that's placed on both parties to be like a parent or a guardian and being a child is that we feed so much into these titles and in terms of authority that we allow the humanity to kind of be lost because that's all really a parent is doing. Like you are, because children have authority, have, uh, authority in their life they have authoritarians and they have guardians in different walks of their life as a parent I guess you're, the only difference is that your uh, guardian uh, I guess you being a guardian is underscored by you know having love and mm. um, and also I guess you're trying to convey your wisdom of the human experience to your children and also is I guess you're more involved in both nature and nurture whereas certainly yeah. most people are involved in nurturing so I guess for me so far as being a good parent is yeah, it's as simple as uh, Roman said. For me, it was kind of like, you know, being a parent means you are, it's the undertaking of, you know, biologically, you are basically doing everything in your power for your gene pool to continue and for you to, and so whatever you put into place is about ensuring that your gene pool is most adapted to survive, if you believe in Darwin. I think for me, the first, this first eight months has made me think about the fact that at times, uh, you may call me an idiot, uh, but like, he's wrong. Like he's, <laughs> he, I'm, it's not always me. Like I was eating breadsticks today and he, his dinner's in half an hour. I'm starving. The, the dirty looks this kid was giving me about eating these breadsticks, not giving him. It's like, it's not your time for breadsticks. But he doesn't like, know what wrong, but remember how he doesn't have a concept of wrong. His concept of morality will typically come from yourself. So for a child, when they're born, especially their brain is kind of undeveloped. The only real impulses you have are what's referred to as the lizard brain or the center mm. of your brain, which only deals with like self gratification. So he doesn't mm. give a fuck if you ate or not. He's hungry. So who yeah. cares what who cares what you want? I'm hungry. Yeah. That, that's how children think. We like a lot of the concepts that we use so far as like our etiquette and other human beings, we have to those are taught behaviors. Like we have to learn a sense of morality. You have to learn mm. a sense of vulgarity. So and again, people can only teach you what they know. So there's a certain elements of my childhood with my dad, for example. Like I grew up in an area where having a father in your home was rather rare. Mm. But so about to say, so I was able so when if I felt like me and my dad aren't particularly, like, we don't communicate that often, I was always able to rationalise it where I'm kind of like, well, some of my friends never speak to their fathers. So, you know, mm-hmm. a little conversation is better than no, none whatsoever. And then also I was able to glean, like, my dad came here when he was 15. And so it meant that his paternal influence would have ended at 15 when he came over here. So by that token, when I when I reached 15, there's probably only so much he can impart from the perspective of being a paternal figure based on that's as far as his, te- his his teaching went. So in that respect, a lot of time as an adult, you can only lead by example. And I think that is, for me, that's one of the things that I think most people tend to overlook is that you don't necessarily teach children things. They do learn, however, and they learn through observation. 
So, for example, if you argue very aggressively with your wife, you can tell your kids not to shout and stuff like that. But if they've learned that that is a pattern used for conflict resolution in their house, when they get into an argument or a position of conflict, they're going to argue as well. Well, people emulating their, I think people emulating their parents and whether you should, I mean, would you encourage your children to emulate you, Ramesh, in some way? No, no. I mean, a lot of people, sometimes I get asked if I, um, if I want my, if what, how I'd feel if my kids wanted to become comedians. And my answer is always that I hope to give them a normal enough upbringing that they don't want to be comedians. (laughs) But I, I, I am conscious of the fact that I actually think Dane made an excellent point um, about observing, kids learning by observing. Mm. And, and one of the things that I sort of, I'm not very good at uh, small talk. I'm not very good at socialising when it's not completely forced upon. You know, like, I, for example, I mean, the example I'm thinking of is when I do the school run, I just want to go in, give my kids a hug send them off to school. I have no interest in talking to any of the other parents. I've got no interest in making eye contact with any of the parents. It's not because I don't like them. It's because it's first thing in the morning and I'm yet to still be fully functional. Except for the fact that I know my kids are going to watch me being like that and they're mm. going to be like that. So now, uh, once I become aware of that, I'm like fucking David Brent, like parlaying <laughs> <laughs> my way through the school playground trying to say hello to people and shit. Do you know what I mean? Because oh, but then, but then again, the way to think of it how, um, as well, Ramesh, though, is that like, Sometimes your parents might see that. I mean, your kids might see that and be like, "I want my behaviour to be as a, in opposition to that." Yes, so that's it's really. True. I mean, so you got to remember that, like, even though we know kids in many ways, even though they are, they do depend on a authoritarian to give them boundaries and obviously to be, to guardianship and to care about them and obviously to nurture them. And like any human being, as a social species, but you know, at some point, and that's why you have to recognise that your job as a parent is as a guardian. Like, that's not your possession. That person will have their mm. have their own ideas, dreams, inclinations, which may not be in line with what you're teaching. So, obviously, all three of us, particularly myself and Ramesh, prime example being, throughout our lives, neither of our parents would have been like, hey, son, you'd make a good comedian. It's not something you're ever going to hear from your parents ever in life. And yet, you know, it's proven to be successful on both, from both sides. Yeah. But if we were to if we were to go to our parents for the advice to lead to this path, we wouldn't. This is not the advice you'd be given. So oh, yeah. it, it's about being a, a guardian, and I guess you can only give people a sense of grounding. And that's and I'm only talking from the perspective as being raised by my parents, where my on reflection, like my dad, for example, I remember when I was younger, and he was kind of like, I don't really care what my kids do as long as they're happy. And my mom was like, What the fuck are you talking about? They're going to be successful. I don't want bums. <laughs> and so yeah. at first, I was like, you know, my because of my upbringing, the idea is about you being a high achiever. But then I got to a point in my life where I was like, just aspiring to be a cog in the ham- in hamster wheel that is capitalism is not going to fulfill me. I want to do something that fulfills me, makes me happy. So, you know, my dad said that when I was like 15, but he was right the whole time. So, yeah. you know, and I, and I said, I respect that. So I think the way, of being, the way to be a good parent is just to be a good person. You will have a lot of esoteric leanings will be like, you know, you, if you're taking it, you don't, Nobody strong should prey on the weak or take advantage of the vulnerable, whether they are your child or anyone else's child. Um, yeah, so that's it. You just be a good person. You'll be and, um, you yeah, know, I hope you. I, I hope you listen to that, Howard. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, no, I've learned a lot from. That, you know I mean? I've learned a lot from this fifteen minutes, and mm. um, uh, it's actually interesting to think that we've got a you know a, a Jewish guy, a, a black guy, and an Asian guy, and 
And obviously that has its own that has its own bearing on what all of that. Our... Mean, Howard? Yes, we all circumcise our children's penises. And that, make us <laughs> <laughs> but that has its <laughs> yeah. That's what this is for, that's why we're here, right? No. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah. Live on the podcast tonight. <laughs> Howard's Howard's child's bris. No, um, um no <laughs> but um no, it is interesting that that is a part of the background of all of what we talked about here, and actually I think that feeds into to what Dane's question was going to be uh, this week, right? Dane, uh, they kind of um, set you up there. Yes, thank you very much for the alley-oop. Um, yeah, let's just continue from being a good person, obviously, from different cultures. As I'm sure you are more than aware that I am Ramesh, that uh, identity politics plays an enormous part of our industry and as our society. Um, and one of the phenomena that I've seen most recently is the rebranding of both the uh, Black and the, sub- and the diaspora from Africa and the subcontinent. Um and like our LGBT uh, friends, brothers and sisters, and uh, members of the non-binary community, we are now uh, all grouped together under this new acronym called BAME, which is for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic. And yeah. we all rejoiced when it came out. You remember the party, don't you, Ramesh? I was yeah, going, I, no, it was fun. It went on. It went it on was, and on, didn't it? It was, as Denise Van Alten used to say, chicken oriental mental. Yeah. That's how good it was. <laughs> Everyone turned up late because you know how BAME folks are. You know, it was... Well, uh, this is it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, I will say that it was chicken oriental, which is a really <laughs> equally archaic, weird way to describe people from Asia. Um, but I digress. So anyway... As a result of this, one of the things that I did, uh, I'm aware of what we spoke about this week, was I, I created the show Bamus, or the pilot Bamus, which is about, uh, you know, trying to add some nuance to uh, the so-called black community within the UK. Now, this whole BAME thing, uh, for those that don't know, BAME is an acronym which uh, is basically used to group and uh, to collectively group uh, non-white people in the UK. Um, however, I would argue it can be quite a uh, reducive umbrella term because for those who don't know Romish for example is uh, from is of Sri Lankan descent um, and uh, is very different for example to uh, Nish Kumar who is of Indian descent and it couldn't be further in two countries in the same way that you know in the same way that Mickey Flanagan is completely a distinct person from a distinct nation as Dara O'Brien so my question to you Romish is uh, because I don't want to uh, race blame the whole thing so far as BAME goes I'm working on the B what I want to know is, how do you think things are going, race relations guys, for the A's? <laughs> what, what does the A mean to you, Ramesh? What does the A mean to you, Ramesh? Because, you know, I feel like you are a particularly different person from Nigel Ng. But, you know, if we are to, if we are to subscribe to this idea of BAME, then, yeah, it'd, be, yeah, it'd, I, it'd all be the same, really, which is strange. Yeah. Um, I, I do find the whole thing... Very difficult. Um, I mean, I mean, like, I, I don't. I, I'm trying to think of one of the things. I mean, I'm trying, there's lots of things. There's lots of things to unpack to do with this. But I mean, I remember when I first started doing stand up, and I think it's. Listen, I don't know if this has got better because my profile has gone up or because things have genuinely got better. But I, I have had on more than one occasion, uh, I have been told that I've had to be moved because they don't want me going on in, uh, uh, bef- directly before another Asian act. Or, you know, you might not get booked on the same night as another Asian act because Asian comedy... Because Asian, yeah, because Asian comedy is a genre, apparently, you know, and and and, and, you that's, know, and that's, what a strange genre, considering the largest stand-up in the entire world is Russell Peters, who is an Asian. So surely, 
it wouldn't stand up be largely Asian then? I, I know. And, and, and then it's like, uh, you know, the other thing is whenever, you know, Nish has been, Nish has been uh, the subject of a lot of sort of right wing ire on, on Twitter and stuff like that. And I am sick of people saying, um, I find Nish offensive uh, but I don't feel the same about Romesh or I find Nish funny, but Romesh on the other hand, I do. like we are, we're, we're just two comedians. All right. You, you don't have to put us in this fucking thing together. Nish and I, I mean, I like Nish. I like what he does. We're mates. We're not in a genre together. We're not, we're not in a thing together. And, and, and that's something that's something, you know, and similarly, Nigel, I mean, thankfully I don't get any tweets saying I like Nigel Lung, but I don't like Romesh. They haven't stretched that far yet, but, um, Yes. It is a, it, it, yeah, it is, a, it is a weird phenomenon. But the other thing I think is, you know, and I'm sure you've, you've and by the way, you know, while, while we're, we're doing this podcast, I thought the way you tackled a lot of these issues on Bamus was, was brilliant, man. So uh, congratulations. Great, man. It, it was Appreciate such a great, it, it was such a great show. But I, um, one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, I was conscious initially of opportunities for, for people from diverse backgrounds on screen. But one of the things I became aware of after doing a, a, a bit of TV was that I think I've met one, uh, South, one South Asian person in production, maybe two in the whole time that I've been working in, in TV. Right. And so suddenly it became, a, it, 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 I became aware of the fact that that needs to, that needs to be sorted out as well. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that, that yeah, needs yeah. to, that needs to be tackled. And, just, and, just to pardon and, ignorance, I want to interrupt, sorry to interrupt you. So far as yeah. uh, South Indian, um, yeah. what does that region normally include? So when I so, sorry, when I say South Asian, I mean like I'm talking like Indian, Pakistani, Bengali, Sri Lanka, you know that Wait, sort sub- of subcontinent, and then nearby. Yeah, that uh, kind of that sort of part of the Dulux chart or whatever, right? So so, <laughs> um, and I, and I just I just hadn't come across enough of those people, and uh, and so that is something that I have uh, more recently sort of become. Uh, passionate about you know trying to trying to do something about that in any way that I can. We've started up a production company, and I'm trying to look at ways that we can not just for Asian people, for for, for diverse backgrounds, you know, across the board. Try try and do something about that. Um, I think I, I think that we can say whatever we want, and, and I know that booking policies have got better. But the truth of the matter is, is that the long term solution to this is to change attitudes from the ground up. And, and, and that's yeah. going to take a long time. And I know people, you know, one of the things that people say is, and, and I'm sure you've seen it, Dane, whenever, when you've been on TV, I don't know how much you get this, but the sort of thing of, well, we know why Romish has been booked for this, or we know why Dane's been booked for that, or we know why this oh, person, yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, all of that yeah. shit. And people going, why does there have to be, why does it have to be someone of colour in every single show? Well, the reason there has to be, or the reason that there is, is because this is a correction for because this should have been this should have been happening from a from a long time ago and it should yeah. have been baked into the booking policy and it hasn't been and so the reason that you are shocked by it is because it's such a difference from what was happening before so, right? yeah so it's horrible. Like, even if you go to, if you go to comedy clubs today like i challenge anyone if you're listening or you know a comedy club or you know someone who's a comedy club go to a comedy club and i'm challenging you to find a black a picture of a black or south asian comic on the walls of that comedy club from over, from po- post 2000. Anyone working circa post 2000. No Rudy Liquids, no Lenny Henrys, no Junior Ashley, no anyone that was doing comedy from the 80s. Anyone that's been doing comedy circa, let's say even 2010. In the last 10 years, any black or South Asian performer trying to find a picture of them 
in a comedy club. And that's a challenge to anyone listening to this podcast right now. And, and the thing is, it's like this, you know, I, I remember growing up and I watched, you know, watched The Real McCoy, I'd watch Goodness Gracious Me, and I remember being fucking excited and thinking, yeah. I wonder what happens next. And after yeah. Goodness Gracious Me, I don't know what the fuck happened next. Cause 20, 20, 20 years of suffering <laughs> and then uh, with replacement with Lee Nelson, Mr. T and uh, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> That's what happened. Citizen Khan? Citizen Khan? Yeah, but... I mean, yeah. I mean, it's just... Your challenge is to find three Asian people who like Citizen Khan. I know. I'm not not shouting about the show from the (laughs) rooftops, I'll tell you that much, but it is is a show. The thing that that does come up here, no, is is that interesting thing about the the decision-making behind the scenes that kind of... Ramesh alluded to, you know, the the company he he runs now, you know, the... The, the, the who's working behind the scenes create a diversity of thought from their, you know, which comes from their background. And, and I think, you, you know, we've all, <laughs> I'm not about to stitch myself out of any commissions here, by the way, but like, you know, all the people in television that generally run the channels have, have, have only come from a very particular background. And therefore a lot of the time you feel like you're talking to people with a very limited amount of experiences, right? That's been for 20 years. And just speaking industrially, it's like if, if there's not been a black British sitcom for 20 years. So after it says that was the gap between like goodness gracious me and real McCoy, where there were no commissions from black or Asian creatives, mm. 20 years. Now, Howard, if you think about 20 years in terms of industry, if you, had a, if, you had a, if you had a factory that made a particular type of car or a, a, a garage and mechanics and you hadn't seen a Volvo there in 20 years, if someone pulls up with a Volvo after 20 years, obviously everyone's going to be like, what the fuck is that? How am I supposed to work on this? <laughs> or, if, if, or if someone, if you had a garage that wasn't open in 20 years and somebody pulled up in a Tesla, no one's going to have any idea because this hybrid is not something they're familiar with. And it's the same applies whereby you've not had the industrial competence to be developed over the course of 20 years. That's why everything looks so crazy to you because it's not something you've seen before. And, 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 you know, the other thing is, is that, you know, you, you are in a default position, you know, you put aside any kind of racial prejudices or whatever that you think you might have, you are naturally predisposed to gravitate towards people who are most like you, right? And, and when you, and, and, and comedy, a lot of comedy is about relatability. And so if you're in a position where you're selecting who is the funniest in your eyes to put on your thing, right? You are naturally predisposed to pick the people whose experiences most or their observations most closely reflect yours. So that means that if all of the people that are responsible for those decisions are from one specific group, if you're from outside of that group, immediately you're at a disadvantage, right? Immediately you're at a disadvantage. And so you have to, you have to find a way of building something into the system that counteracts that. Now, in the long term, the way that that's tackled is that you that those people cease to be from one group, you know, and that you have a diverse selection of people who are the decision makers and the people that are responsible for putting those things on. But in the meantime, you have to put in, you have to put in false, you know, you have to accelerate or or figure out a way around that so that you get a proper, a proper booking process, a proper commissioning process. And, and those things are happening, but they mm. won't be perfect. And, and so, you know, the, well, the truth is... the other way anyway, so... <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not so, perfect. And, and what's, yeah. even, what's even crazier as well, Howard, is that the paradox of it being is that, as Romesh says, that, you know, the and it, people will gravitate towards something that is representative of them in terms of relatability. Comedy being an oratory medium, in actuality, is a, a lot of the people that excel within this industry come from minority groups, technically. So, you know, a lot of very successful... Like, Jerry Seinfeld is one of the most successful comedians in the world, Howard. Of Jewish mm. descent, but we both know that uh, Jews form a, a considerable minority both in the UK and in both English speaking countries. 
Mm. I think next on the list is Kevin Hart, who's an African-American. Then I think you have uh, Dave Chappelle, Chris Rock's there, Joe Rogan, Amy Schumer. All these people are anything but of Anglo-Saxon ancestry, and yet they are the most successful, according to Forbes, comedians in the world, as well as Russell Peters, who is of Asian, uh, Canadian-Asian descent. So even then, narratively, there, it stands to reason that we still have a massive mutuality with audiences or have... Because, and as I say, it's like nobody bolts when they see black players on Match of the Day anymore because it's like it's mm. been so normalized when they see it. Then no one has to be like, a black boxer in a fight of pugilism. Whereas it seems this one subsector of entertainment, which involves um, oration and, and a description of your experience, is something they don't want to be going for in the UK. And I want to add to the question as well, Ramesh, because I know you said you only met another South Asian in an executive position. Uh, being from Sri Lanka, like, how how does that play out um, throughout your journey as, as a comic and stuff? Do you, have you found is that and you know you did the Asian Frog Turn and like and met with the family and stuff? Have you found uh, finding uh, you know other peers with the same heritage easier since you started doing comedy? Do you find people gravitate towards you and kind of like find there's someone who speaks on behalf of Sri Lankans or do you find that you are a mouthpiece for the whole of the subcontinent pre-partition, of course? Um, um, I, th- I it's quite it's quite the truth is it's quite complicated. Um, mm. uh, I mean, I think that you know there there is a there is a, a, an ethnicity issue in in being Sri Lankan in that I'm Tamil Sri Lankan, and there's obviously you know the the, the civil war going on there and and there the, the, so the, the, you, you're so many, MIA basically out here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so <laughs> but but the, the, but the problem is is like I I encountered uh, hostility. From Sri Lankans off the back of Asian provocateur because um, mm. I, I you know just even the other day I got a message from a, a Sri Lankan of Sinhalese descent who said you're not you why are you pretending that that Tamil Sri Lankan is the Sri Lankan experience and you, your people don't you know you're not indigenous to Sri Lanka you know there was a sort of a racial kind of divide yeah, yeah. within Sri Lankan people and so that's difficult uh, you know that 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 sort of uh, makes it slightly more complex. What I would say is I've I found it more in terms of I've had lots of messages from comedians, not just of, of of young people, like not just of Sri Lanka descent, but of South Asian descent, who've said, "Watch, I've started doing comedy because of watching you doing comedy." You know, it's yeah. sort of given me uh, the belief that 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 that, that, I, that I can do this, or people with my background can do this. And I think about I didn't. It didn't really occur to me until I thought about my own experiences of watching like Real McCoy and goodness gracious me and shows like that, where you sort of think, "Fuck, this is actually a thing that that people with my background could do," you know. But even then, Dane, as you know, that doesn't mean you suddenly do it. My parents weren't going, "Oh, you like goodness gracious me? Why don't you give it?" A-? I mean, that absolutely, <laughs> that absolutely, <laughs> that absolutely. Sorry, really, is all- I really caught your eye. Would you like some more stuff to say? <laughs> Um, so yeah, that hasn't, that, that, that hasn't, uh, that wasn't what happened, but I think, but I have had that where, uh, where I felt, and, and also the other thing is in audiences as well, you know, I've quite mixed audiences and, and, you know, I, I sort of, as you were talking there about speaking to people from different groups, I, um, I, um, I watched, I recently watched uh, Joe Coy's special. I can't remember what it's called, but it's the one in Hawaii. But the first 10 minutes, the first 10 minutes, he's talking about how Vietnamese people speak and how Chinese people speak. He sort of, he breaks it all down. And, um, I've never seen stand up about that before, you know, about those specific, those specific. And he, I, I, I genuinely believe, I don't think there's 
I don't know if there's a special on Netflix where somebody rips the first 10 minutes the way that he rips that first 10 minutes there. Now, part of that is to do with the size of the, the yeah, size yeah. of the arena and the way it's all shot and everything. But it did occur to me when I was watching that, that is a group of people, although those are groups of people who probably have never been spoken to or very rarely are spoken to like that by, by a comedian or by comedy. And so suddenly you have this person that's making very, very specific observations that you fucking know, but you've yeah. never, you, you've never had addressed before, you know? And, um, and I just think that's an amazing thing. I, I just don't think really good. It's you good can point. downplay, like, you can downplay that level of connection that, you, that it, you're having as an audience. It's a good point, obviously to reference another British Asian comic, um, Paul Chowdhury. Yeah. Um, you know, people will say that, but he just takes the piss out of like Gujaratis and Bengali. But, this is the this is the key part of inclusion that people don't understand. If you have never even heard your your existence being acknowledged, mm. then just to even hear someone even reference Gujarati as a nuanced part of describing an Asian experience, you're like, oh shit! And you know, it's like if people are starving, and you, even if you throw them stale bread, it's still the best meal they've ever fucking had because they're starving. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And, 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 and I think it's once you get past that point, then obviously the. Uh, diversity and inclusion and then this representation becomes a point then because then when you do have a presence then it's about having more accurate representation of who you are and uh yeah i mean i started watching a joke thing and like i said it's great because most people let's be honest most people do not make large distinctions between particularly people who are uh, north or northeastern asian yeah yeah so even just breaking that down for people who be laotian Vietnamese, cambodian like very rarely only only at points of conflict do you even hear that being discussed so yeah, yeah. I thought it was, yeah. I thought it was interesting, and and you know, to, to, in 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 answer to your question about age, I do, you know, I have as the years have gone on, come across, you know, in recent years in particular, come across people of South Asian descent that are working in, te- you know, the, the, the BBC. I know that, they, you know, for example, Ruby, who looks after the Ranga Nation. There's, a, they're, oh, they're, I love they're, Ruby, they're, yeah. yeah. So there, there are, it is, it is changing, and, and things are getting better. I just, um, I just hope that they continue in that in that way you know because I, I just want mm. i want all of that to be you know as you do as we all do want it to all be baked in it's not it's not a, yeah, it's not part yeah, of a thing exactly. it's just this is just how fucking life is do you if, know what if, I mean? if, like, if, if representation was subway that should be the cheese and toasted correct 100 percent. <laughs> thank it's, you Dave. that's yeah. the cheese and toasted part yeah, cheese and toast, all exactly the same. I always remember Dane at some point in these podcasts, you said it as uh, as "bame" is this phrase that makes you feel like I'm being handed a high vez, a high vis vest when I walk into a meeting, or yeah. like you say, or some. Like, Here come the bames! Hello, everybody, include me, please. <laughs> um, but that has been one of. I mean, what a great episode, Dane. I think we're 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 at the end, but that was um that was a winner, right? Long time coming, but uh, uh, worth the wait. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ramesh. Uh, no, thanks for yeah, having Great work in, in terms of, like, you know, that's uh, also, we, as far as being famous, you know, being ageless is also important to us here on this podcast. Sure, um, sure. I'll say shout out Ramesh, shout out Rabina and Poppy as well. Previous oh, alumni yeah. of the podcast, Ken Cheng. We've got all the, listen, guys, you want all the A's and the AIM, you come, <laughs> I, you come, come down to, to, come down to, quote, Quotes for? I don't do quotes for anymore. Question everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my brain is burning. Um, no, thank you so much, Ramos. This has been amazing, man. And no obviously, worries. for those who may be waking from a coma um, or have been able to escape from uh, being captured by ISIS, where can those people reacquainting themselves with the world find your great works at the moment? 
Uh, well, I guess the thing that's most pertinent is uh, I've got a new series of the Ranga Nation coming out. Uh, starts in a few weeks uh, on BBC Two, and then that's it, really. You, and then other bits the Nation because we were tired of people being like, "Oh, because you're Tamil Sri Lanka, Tamil Sri Lanka," and I was like, "The same thing." Like, fine, I'm at my own country then. <laughs> yeah, hundred well, percent. Yeah, yeah, I've got my own nation. Prick. Yeah, well, now what are going to do yeah. exactly? Yeah, now I'm indigenous, motherfucker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that, what, what a way to end it and now I'm indigenous motherfucker and keep watching this stage that's what me when me and Ramesh are on stage at the BAFTAs that's what we're going to say we're indigenous now motherfuckers <laughs> thank you Ram that was brilliant cheers mate that thanks amazing man thank you all you've been listening to Dane or follow him on Twitter at DaneBaptweets or Instagram at DaneSnapTeast. Our guest was Ramesh Ranganathan. You can follow Ramesh on Twitter and Instagram at Ramesh Ranga. The show is produced by me, Howard Cohen. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at the Howard Cohen. The show is mixed and mastered by Audio Culture. You can follow Audio Culture on Instagram at WeAreAudioCulture. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at DBQE Podcast. Thanks to Polly, Gelly, and the ACAST team for all their support. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.